Good morning. Thank you all so much for having me. So I understand this is the younger crowd, right? Like slightly, right? Do we have some toddlers or preschool preschoolers? Any preschoolers in the room? Like one or two. Okay, and toddlers? So some toddlers and then lots of babies, right? Okay, good. So today we're talking about sleep. Sleep is a topic that is going to impact all of us. I feel like this is like, okay. Um, and, and all of us who are moms in the room obviously have felt lack of sleep at some point. Um, so we're all affected by this one way or another at some point in our lives. And if you have children, you're likely to struggle with sleep at some point in your life or your child's life. In fact, 80% of infants who have sleep problems will continue to have sleep problems until the ages of three to five years old and many, many way beyond that. I work with lots and lots of kids who are six, seven, eight years old and even up to 10 and 12 years old who still are experiencing sleep problems. So this is the time where we can make some changes to kind of change that trajectory so that we're not dealing with this for years and years and years on end. So what I want you guys to take away from this today, I don't want you walking out of here feeling guilty that like, oh, I'm not doing everything just right, because I know as moms we have the tendency to do that to ourselves. Um, I want you to walk away today with a feeling of hope that if things aren't going well or aren't just right in this moment, that you can be proactive and that there are some changes you can make today so that you don't just have to sit around and wait for your child to outgrow whatever sleep challenge they may or may not be experiencing. So let me tell you a little bit about my story. This is a tale of two kiddos. Uh, my daughter is six. Her name is Reagan, and she is my spirited child. If any of you have those, you know exactly what that means. She came out that way. Um, but she was actually my good sleeper. So, you know, before I had her, I was read, read a couple books. I did exactly what they said, and she fell right in line as far as sleep went. Um, she was sleeping about nine hours by nine weeks old, and I, as a first-time mom, like, I felt like, like, I'm awesome, you know. So three years later, when I was pregnant with my son, I assumed that he would be the same, that I would do all the same things I did with her, with him, and he would be a great sleeper, and, and that part of my life would be a breeze. Um, but for those of you who have more than one children, you know that every child is different, and you probably will learn some lessons with each new child. So he came along, and... Um, by three months of age, he seemingly could only sleep 20 minutes at a time. So I was losing my ever-loving mind, and um, I was getting really desperate, so I was doing all the same things that any of you would do. I was asking my mommy friends what, you know, any advice, my mom. I was posting online for advice. That's probably not the way to go. Um, so I was just seeking answers. I was reading more books. I was trying everything, and nothing seemed to work. Like, everything I would try, I would always hit a wall and feel like he's not doing what the book said he should be doing. Um, so I just was feeling lost, and kind of in that search, I stumbled across a sleep consultant. I'd never heard of a sleep consultant before. Um, I, I, my initial reaction was probably like, that's ridiculous. Like, I'm not going to pay money 
to have someone tell me all the things I've already read in a book. Um, but at the same time, she had been recommended to me, and I heard several other moms, you know, have really good success stories with her. So I was desperate, and I was intrigued enough to give it a try. So kind of approached my husband about that, like, I think I want to hire this sleep consultant. And his reaction was pretty much the same, like, that is ridiculous. I mean, truthfully, like, I'm a trained social worker. I'm educated in child development. I taught parenting classes, y'all. Like, I should be able to figure this out, right? But I couldn't. I, and I was just, you know, we were spiraling. Like, it was affecting my daughter, who was three. She wasn't getting the attention she needed. It was affecting me in every way possible. Um, my son, who started out a happy baby, wasn't a happy baby. And it was taking a toll on my marriage because we were constantly arguing about this. You know, what should we do? What should we not do? Um, so my husband saw that I was desperate and, and kind of was like, okay, we can give this a try. But and that, at that time, he proposed to me, um, like, if this works, and if this is as magical as she claims, would you consider becoming a sleep consultant? So I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. If that's, how, if that's what I have to do to like, give this a go, then I'm willing to give it a go. So I hired her. She put together a plan for me. Um, and to be quite honest, there was nothing in that plan that like knocked my socks off. It was all stuff that I'd kind of heard before, um, but it was put together in a way to help me weed out the good and the bad. What should I be doing? What should I not be, be doing? And what was applicable to my son? So it was a specific plan for him, and most importantly, she supported me as I implemented it. So all those roadblocks I kept hitting before where I was like, oop, he didn't do quite what I thought he should do. Or I'm not quite sure how to handle this situation. She guided me through that um, so that I could kind of get over the hump and, and continue with progress. And I'm not even exaggerating when I tell you by night three of implementing that sleep plan, this little guy who could only sleep 20 minutes slept 12 hours without a peep, just like that. And he kept doing it night after night after night after that. So by night three, I knew I was on my way to becoming a sleep consultant. So it, I, I pretty immediately started the process um, to get certified right after I finished with her. And in March of 2016, I opened my business, Dream Factory Sleep Solutions. And ever since then, I've been working with families all over the country um, to help them achieve that same level of sleep success, not just for their babies, but for themselves as well. So to date, I've worked with over 150 kiddos, aging roughly zero to eight, and a couple, one 10-year-old and one 12-year-old too. So um, so early childhood uh, sleep challenges is kind of my thing. So why sleep? <clears throat> well, to be quite honest, there's a lot we don't know about sleep still, which is mind-boggling because you kind of think science and medicine has everything figured out. But there's so much going on in our bodies when we sleep that science doesn't even really know everything that happens. But a few things that we do know is that sleep is a basic survival need. What are some of the other survival needs that you can think of? Just name it out. Food, water, shelter. Mm. Optional, I would say. Um, you can live without human contact. Like survival is what we need to live, live. So shelter, food, water, air. Yes, that's the one we're missing. And sleep. 
Sleep is on that list. Those truly are the most basic survival needs. And yet sleep is the one that our society kind of feels like, meh, like it's optional. It's a sign of weakness somehow, right? But it's not. We can't survive without it. And in fact, science tells us that our bodies can actually go longer without food, not water, but food, then they can go without sleep. If you've ever been sleep deprived, and I know you all have, you feel those effects immediately, like in less than 24 hours, right? Um, so one thing you want to know about sleep is that the drive for sleep is stronger for the, than the drive for food. And if you've ever had a toddler who has just fallen asleep in a high chair, you know this is true. It does not matter how hungry they are. If what sleep is what their body needs in that moment, then sleep is going to take over, right? So it is that crucial for our body to function. And the reason is because sleep is when our body can repair itself. Um, there's a book called Why We Sleep. And the author of that book says that wakefulness is like minor brain damage. So all the hours we're spending awake are, is kind of damaging our mind, damaging our bodies. And sleep is our body's way of naturally repairing itself. So muscle repair, hormone regulation, growth hormones are all produced when we're sleeping. Okay, So it's our body's time to repair itself from the damage of the day. So it really is that crucial that we're giving our bodies the opportunity to repair every 12, 10, 8-ish hours, that kind of thing at night. One thing on this list that I want to uh, point out to you, I have what we all know what, how we feel with adequate sleep and inadequate sleep, but inadequate sleep means you're putting your body at risk. Not just you, but your child, okay? So lots of uh, risk for obesity, risk for diabetes. And one thing on that list that I want to point out is misdiagnosis. So there's been a lot of research in the last few years showing that sleep deprivation or the signs of sleep deprivation actually mimic almost identically the symptoms of ADD and ADHD. So, um, and this is, you think that's like common sense, but this is actually pretty new research um, that a lot of medical professionals are really just getting in tune with. Um, so I do think that there may be a population out there that is being diagnosed with ADD and ADHD when perhaps what they're actually suffering from is a sleep disorder that's preventing them from getting quality sleep at night. So that's something to consider. So how do we achieve adequate sleep? Or really what constitutes adequate sleep? So I know this diagram is really hard to see. So flip your handout over, and there's a chart on the back that tells you for your kiddos by age what is recommended for your child. So adequate sleep is what your body or your child's body needs to get sufficient repair. Okay, so that's what we're trying to achieve. And these recommendations are from the National Sleep Foundation. I would actually say they're on the conservative side. So I think that um, most of the families I work with, their kiddos are achieving the upper end of those uh, recommendations. And I will point out the adults. So the age range for adults, all of you, should be getting somewhere between seven and nine hours of sleep at night in order for your body to sufficiently repair. And best case is uninterrupted sleep 
because that is better quality sleep. Each time you're waking up and going back to sleep, you're kind of starting over, which means you're spending less time in that deep sleep, which is less restorative and less repairing, okay? So ideally, consolidated sleep is what we're shooting for. So again, how do we achieve this? I'm gonna show you a little quick video and see if we can get some ideas. Maybe it's because we're making eye contact. Well, I read that if you make eye contact, it keeps them engaged and awake. <laughs> Is she asleep? I don't know. I can't see her. What is that? This is a glove full of beans. You lay it on their back, and it, you know, makes the dog someone's touching them while they're sleeping. Okay, where did you hear about that? And don't say the, the internet. internet. Let's get out of here. There was a farmer who had a dog, and Bingo was his name. Arf, I-N-G-O, arf, I-N-G-O, arf. Just let her stay up. No. I, I think I have one last thing. What are you reading? I read that if you do this, Patrick will be asleep in less than a minute. Okay, we're trying to get her to go to sleep, not tease her like a southern dog. Anybody relate? Me? I did. I did probably everything in that video, maybe minus the beans and the glove. I hadn't heard of that one yet. Otherwise, I probably would have tried it. Um, but I was trying everything I could think of to get my baby to sleep. So um, what's the common theme with everything that they were doing? Any ideas? Stimulation? Yeah. They we're doing it for her, right? Like they felt like it's my job to put this baby to sleep. Meanwhile, they're probably overstimulating a lot of that time. Babies are really overstimulated quite easily. So um, some babies can fall asleep that way. 
rocking and that sort of thing. Um, and other babies can't because that's not how our bodies really are designed. We're kind of designed to have like a dark, quiet space and then drift off to sleep. So for, for a lot of babies, a lot of that interaction is only making sleep harder. And um, this often gets worse with age. So a lot of times our newborns will fall asleep. And this was my son, like two minutes of rocking, fell asleep, no problem. But the older he gets and the more alert he gets, now we're at an hour worth of rocking for 20 minutes of sleep, right? It starts to take longer and longer and longer. So the fix for that really is to let them do what comes naturally, give them the skills to kind of do it on their own. Let me give you an example of this. This picture is me and my son when he was less than 24 hours old. Um, what happened right before this picture was taken was I had laid him down completely awake. He laid there pretty peacefully for quite a while. He looked in my eyes, and I looked in his eyes, and it was like this magical new mom moment. And when he was ready, he just drifted off to sleep, just like that. I didn't do anything. He didn't have a pacifier in his mouth. I wasn't nursing. I wasn't rocking. He just fell asleep. So he could do that at 24 hours old, less than, and yet, fast forward to three months of age, and he could not do this. He had somehow seemingly lost this ability. So what I needed to do was to tap into this skill, the skill that he was born with that came naturally to him. And the reason that this happens is because babies' brains are developing so quickly. They're actually connecting 700 synapses per second. So your baby is soaking in all of the information around them, everything they're doing, they're constantly learning. So 700 synapses are being created in the brain every second. That is so much information. There's no possible way all of that is going to be retained or committed to long-term memory. So what happens with the brain is it starts to prune things that it doesn't need. So even though these synapses are created, it's going to start getting rid of things that, that the brain feels like, I don't need to remember that. So it's the things that happen repetitively that gets committed to memory. So if, it, if this only happened once or twice, so by three months, he kinda, his brain kind of removed that information. I don't need to know how to do this because I know that rock is how I'm going to fall asleep. And I had, I had good intentions. I had lots of valid reasons why I was rocking him to sleep. He had acid reflux, so that's where my focus was. I, he needs to be held upright, and I was really um, focused on you know, making sure he was comfortable and that sort of thing. But meanwhile, he had kind of lost this ability of like just falling asleep independently because um, I had kind of conditioned him to think he needed to be rocked to sleep. But then when I laid him down, he would instantly wake up or wake up as soon as he hit a sleep cycle transition like 20 minutes later. So babies are born with the ability to sleep. And in fact, they are sleeping in utero. By 32 weeks gestation, they're sleeping 90 to 95% of the time in utero. So they're doing this all day without pacifiers, without being rocked, without being breastfed. They're waking up and putting themselves to sleep and waking up and putting themselves to sleep. So they do come into this world with that instinct and with that ability. So I ruined it. I ruined it for my son. That's my story. That's not every case, but 
independent sleep skills can be a very important part in helping your child sleep better. And this is not to say that if you are rocking your baby to sleep or nursing your baby to sleep, that they are definitely going to have sleep challenges. That's not what I'm saying because every baby is different. But what I am saying is that if your baby is not sleeping well, then you do want to at least consider that this could be part of the problem, okay? And the reason that that you know helping your baby into sleep is problematic is because waking is going to happen. It is natural. Your baby will never sleep through the night. You will never sleep through the night. That's not how sleep works. We're going to go through light stages of sleep and then deep stages of sleep and then light stages of sleep and then we're going to wake up and do it again. So we have brief awakenings throughout the night and our eyes will open and we'll roll over and go back to sleep and not even remember that that happened. But for babies who are relying on a sleep prop, what would a sleep prop be? Does anybody know what that term means? What? Pacifier? Yes. Anything else? bottle. Yeah. Pacifier to sleep. Bottle to sleep. Rocking to sleep. Anything that your baby thinks they must have, like this specific circumstances, I must have this to sleep, could be considered a negative sleep prop. And the most important thing to know about sleep props is that it's only negative if your baby can't control it themselves. Okay? So, um, so there are some things that can be helpful tools, like white noise, and we'll get to that in a moment. But um, what you want to do to make sure that the sleep prop is not the reason your baby is waking throughout the night is to give them the skills to put them to sleep in an environment that they can control so that later on in the night, when they have that brief awakening, they're not needing to cry out for you to come back and get the pacifier, come back, nurse me back to sleep, come back, rock me back to sleep. If they have the skill to do that and kind of know this is the way I fall asleep, I can be laid down in my swaddle and just open my eyes, resituate, and then fall back asleep on my own, then they don't need to cry out for you. So that's eventually going to help them phase out night feedings and all of that sort of stuff down the road. So independent sleep skills can be very, very helpful um, to make sure that they can transition those sleep cycles um, throughout the night. So one thing that I want to point out here is that it's not the act itself. There's nothing inherently wrong, of course, with holding your baby while they're sleeping or rocking them to sleep or nursing them to sleep, and that's going to happen from time to time. It's only a problem if that's the association your baby has made in their mind that this is the only way I know how to fall asleep. Okay, so I'm not like trying to guilt anyone for holding their babies. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but when you're starting to feel like I'm going back in the room to put this pacifier in multiple times a night. Or I'm, I, I think he should be able to go all night without a feeding. And when I nurse, he's only nursing for a few minutes and then he falls right back to sleep. This could be a big part of what's going on there is that he's using that as a tool to fall asleep rather than having that ability to do kind of internally on his own. So some tips for helping your child fall asleep independently. So with this, I know that this is going to be probably the hardest part for a lot of you is helping your child learn independent sleep skills. And this is the primary focus of what I do in, um, in private consultations. Because again, not every baby is different. I tried one thing with my daughter and it worked like a dream. 
my son wasn't having any of it. So, like, I needed someone to help me out with that. Um, so that's a lot of what we do is finding the right way for each baby um, within your comfort level, too. It has to be doable for you as well um, to really achieve that. But some of the common themes that I work, that I find with families that I work with are routines, Routines are absolutely critical. And, and when I'm talking about a routine, I'm not talking about a daily schedule. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like the exact same thing at the exact same day every single day, um, but more of a rhythm to the day. You know, your baby kind of gets in this rhythm of like, I know I wake up and then I eat and then I sleep and I wake up and I eat and I sleep. They kind of know what happens throughout the day so that they can start, their body can get in a circadian rhythm. That's the point of having the daily routine um, to kind of get your baby's rhythm in line. And during awake times, you'll want to expose them to sunlight or, or um, um, at least bright lights if it's not reasonable to go outside and then sleep times you may want to expose them to darkness that really signals to the body that awake time is play time and sleep time darkness is sleep time right um, the location is another really big problem and when I say location I'm really specifically referring to the location where your baby is falling asleep so um, if your baby is falling asleep in your arms and then you lay them down and you transition them and they stay asleep, that's great, but then they're waking up 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later. That is likely when they're hitting that first sleep cycle transition and they're realizing I'm not where I was when I originally fell asleep. Imagine if you fell asleep in your bed and woke up on the living room couch, right? Like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> that is uncomfortable and unsettling, right? So you want, it's helpful if your baby is kind of aware of their surroundings as they're falling asleep. So to the best of your ability, um, you want to try to let them fall asleep in the location you want them to sleep in so that when they hit that sleep cycle transition later and they have that brief awakening, they're in a familiar spot rather than I was in mom's arms and now I'm in this crib alone and now I'm confused. Okay, so that can be really, really helpful. Um, for older kids, I'll touch on this because I know we have a few toddlers out there. Um, older kids, one of the most common things that I work with is that the parent must lay with the baby or the child to fall asleep. Um, and again, nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, and if you, if you lay with them for five minutes and they fall asleep and they sleep great, no problem. But if you're laying with them and it takes a while or you're laying with them and you find that they're boomeranging back to your bed 20 times a night, or even once, if that's one, what is unbearable for you, um, then this may be part of the problem. They're waking up realizing mom was here and now she's not. I need her to come back and lay with me again so that I can fall back asleep. So one thing that you can do is a transitional object. Um, this would be like a comfort item of some sort for toddlers, so a lovey or a stuffed animal that they like. Um, I call it like a sleeping buddy. Pick your sleeping buddy who's going to sleep with you tonight. And um, this is not going to magically solve the sleep issue, but you can over time kind of teach your child, like, you don't need me because you have your sleeping buddy. Gravitate toward that instead. Um, so if you kind of encourage that, then a lot of kids will, will gravitate, start gravitating toward that on their own. Um, training aids. So training aids would be something like a sleep clock, um, a toddler training clock of some sort, like the okay to wait clock or a light up clock. So this is a tool to help your toddler understand 
what behavior is expected and when. So a, a lot of the criticism I get with these clocks is, yeah, I bought the okay to wait clock. My kid didn't care about it. Like it didn't do anything. Well, the, the clock itself is not magical. Okay, you have to give it meaning. So it's a tool, again, to help your child recognize what behavior is expected and when. So when the clock says it's nighttime, you are expected to stay in your bed. When the clock says it's morning, you are allowed to get out. That's something that they can understand because when they wake up in the middle of the night, they don't know it's the middle of the night. So if they're awake, they probably assume you're awake too. But if they have the guideline of the clock, like, oh, okay, I see that the clock says that it's nighttime. That means I know mommy or daddy is going to tell me I got to go back to bed, right? So the other thing about that is setting clear boundaries. And when I say clear boundaries, I mean be very specific about the behavior you're expecting. So yelling at your child, like, just go to sleep. That really isn't helpful um, because especially if sleep isn't coming easily for them for whatever reason, then that just agitates them. Like, I know I'm supposed to go to sleep, but I can't. So I would prefer using um, instructions like lay quietly. So you don't have to go to sleep, but other people in the house are still sleeping, which means you cannot be out of your bed yet. So go back to bed and lay quietly. If you can kind of manage that stalling behavior, the misbehavior, and get them to lay quietly, it is much more likely they will drift off to sleep. So you kind of have to enforce this, and you may initially, when you in introduce something like the clock, you may want to come up with like a rewards consequence system that your toddler may enjoy to motivate them. So don't expect the clock to just magically keep your kiddos in bed, um, but if you can kind of teach them that this is exciting and that you have control over this and this is what you'll get out of it, and this is what will happen if you don't follow the rules, then that can kind of motivate them to start to abide by the clock. So the cool thing about the clock with, um, with toddlers and preschoolers is that it actually gives them a sense of control, which we all know toddlers crave. Um, so they want that control. They just don't know what to do with it when they get it. So it gives them the sense of control. Like, I know that I can control. I'm allowed out of bed when the light comes on. Um, and through that, it can give them a sense of pride and accomplishment. Look what I've done. I stayed in bed until the light came on, and I'm so proud, and Mommy's proud, and they're happy with me. Um, so it actually can get them more excited about the process, if done well, okay? So that's a good tool. Um, one thing I want to point out about independent sleep, because I know when we talk about independent sleep, most people will think sleep training, cry it out. Um, and I just want you to know that's not the only answer. So if you're feeling like there's no way I can let my baby cry, um, you don't have to do that. You can do this in a gentle and respectful way. We're just talking about changing expectations for your baby. So if they're really used to one specific thing, let's start mixing it up and trying a, a few different things to start breaking that association. That doesn't mean you have to leave them alone in a room to cry. And in fact, most families who come to me are not comfortable with cry it out or they've tried it and felt like it didn't work. So I tend to use gentle methods that will ease both parents and babies into this transition and still achieve the same results, okay? So it doesn't really matter what method you use to achieve this. Choose a method that you're comfortable with and that you feel like you can stick with, 
that's the most important thing is that it's not going to just change itself magically in one night. I mean, we do hear those stories about, well, he cried for 30 minutes and then he slept for three nights straight. That's not realistic, okay? It's going gonna, it's gonna to build. It's going to take a few nights most likely. And, and I'm not saying that's not unheard of. Like, it can happen. Um, but um, be consistent. Stick with it because there's going to be some ups and downs. Uh, your baby's going to go through a little bit. They're going to be confused at first. You can't explain to your baby, like, tonight we're going to lose the passy, okay? Everything good? All right. Like, they're not going to get that memo until they do it. And so that's the, the most important thing to remember is that kids and babies learn by doing. They can't watch you fall asleep independently and learn how to do it for themselves. They can't watch you stay in bed and learn that that's what they're supposed to do. They learn by doing and experiencing. So it's really that first time that they, if, you know, if they're used to falling asleep with a pacifier in their mouth and you take it away, it's that first time that they fall asleep without that pacifier in their mouth, that's where the learning begins. Now they've experienced it for the first time, and now they have that memory bank of, okay, I've done this before, I know what to do, and it gets easier and easier and easier over time with more practice. It's pretty similar to, you know, taking your child to daycare. I heard some of you talking this morning about how drop-off go this morning, right? Like last week or, or two weeks ago when you all met, it may have been a real challenge. Today may have been a little bit easier because now it's at least somewhat familiar, okay? So kind of same concept here. Like the more your child experiences it, the more they're going to get used to it and the easier it will get over time, okay? So consistency. Consistency is the absolute key to sleep in general, but also with helping develop those independent sleep skills. So when I say consistency, I'm talking about consistency in your response to your child. And so if there's multiple caregivers, you want to get everybody on the same page. If dad is sometimes responding to baby in the middle of the night, or if there's a babysitter during the day or a grandma during the day, let's try to get everybody on the same page so that we're doing, we're all kind of responding in the same way. And that's going to really help baby understand what is expected each and every time. So, you know, if at bedtime, baby has to cry for 10 minutes to fall asleep on their own, but in the middle of the night, they're allowed to nurse to sleep every time, that's confusing. Why am I allowed to nurse to sleep in the middle of the night, but not at bedtime? So that can actually lead to more crying in the long run. So kind of cut to the chase to get quicker results. Let's respond in the same way every single time. I'm not saying that you can't night feed. Of course you can. But you may want to try keeping baby awake for the feeding and laying them back down awake just like you're doing at bedtime so that even after a night feed, they're still putting themselves to sleep rather than falling asleep on the breast or bottle. Okay? That's going to help them learn much quicker. And naps are the same. Um, you know, if grandma rocks me to sleep and holds me in her arms every nap, but mom is making me do something else, then that may prolong your progress. I'm not saying that it's not possible because babies certainly can understand, you know, this is how we do it at like daycare and this is how we do it at home. Like they can over time understand that. But if you're looking for quicker results, like we know this is going to be an uncomfortable few days and we really just want to get to the other side where everyone's happy again, um, then being very, very consistent for naps, for nighttime, for middle of the night is going to be really helpful. 
Um, same time and place is really helpful, and this is the same for adults too. When you think about how you sleep, you probably sleep the absolute best in your own bed. None of us really sleep all that well in a hotel or at the in-laws house because we are creatures of habit. And the time and place where, where we are sleeping actually sends our bodies the signal like, this is my sleeping spot. And I know when I get in this bed, what I'm supposed to do and fall asleep. So it actually helps our bodies recognize when it's time to sleep, which then helps sleep come a little bit easier. So having the same time and place for your baby. And when I say time, again, not necessarily talking about specific timing, uh, depending on the age of your child. Older kids, certainly we can go by time. Younger babies, we're probably going more by a wake window, and we'll talk about that in a minute too. Um, but kind of the rhythm to the day, uh, like I recognize when I'm supposed to sleep next or when sleep is coming next. And most importantly, if we have a primary location to sleep, I know this is my sleeping spot. When I am laid in this crib, in this dark room, I know that this is where I'm supposed to sleep. So, And I know with little ones, it's impossible to sleep in a crib all of the time, especially if you have multiple kids, you're going to be out and on the go. So let's focus on like nighttime sleep. Let's make this our primary sleep for nighttime sleep and maybe one nap a day if you can, so that over time and when they're, when the drap, uh, nap stop drop, start dropping, um, you can kind of get in more of a rhythm of like all of our naps are at home and in the crib rather than sometimes it's in the car seat, sometimes it's in somebody's arms, sometimes it's here, sometimes it's there. Um, or my clients, like sometimes it's on the living room floor, sometimes it's in mom's bed, like who knows, right? If it's kind of generally speaking when you're at home in the same place, then that's actually going to help your child recognize what to do and when. Um, so let's talk about the sleep environment because, again, environment is extremely important in helping the body do what it's meant to do. So melatonin is going to produce naturally. We want to encourage that. Um, and the, the best trigger for melatonin production is darkness. So putting your child in a dark room, and again, I'm not talking, some babies sleep comes very easily, and so they're not bothered by a little bit of light, but if your baby is even remotely struggling, or you are even remotely struggling with falling asleep and staying asleep, then darkness is going to be a big factor. So I would really recommend darkening the room as much as possible. Um, blue and green lights, shades of light, inhibit mel melatonin production more than any other shade of light. So babies really don't have the mental capacity to be afraid of the dark. So if you can get away with not using a nightlight at all, that would be my best recommendation. Um, or maybe have a very, very dim light that you can turn on and off as needed for, for night feeding. So you only flip it on when you go in the room and then flip it off when you come back out. Your baby does not need a nightlight. Toddlers, maybe, if they're starting to express a fear. So if you do feel like a, one nightlight is necessary, and I really wouldn't use more than one, um, a yellow or amber shade of nightlight would be preferred. Okay, that's a, a much better option. Um, a boring bed. So I mentioned a minute ago that having a transitional object or comfort object can be helpful, um, and that's true, but we do not want a bed full of toys. We're not trying to encourage baby to play in there. We want them to kind of be bored enough to fall asleep. Again, we're talking about that stimuli. They're getting overstimulated if there's lots of toys going on. So mobiles, those little aquariums, music, lights, sounds, toys, get rid of all of that. 
We want dark and boring. So if you're using a comfort item, if, you're, if your child's old enough for that, um, one, that's all they need. One thing to snuggle with, and then, and then the rest is boring, okay? White noise can be, oh, cool temperature. I will touch on that because that's one of the things in consultations that I feel like um, couples that I'm working with, like one is always the winner. Like, I told you, we need it cool or we need it warmer or whatever. Um, so no, this is a matter of preference to an extent, but cool temperature is best. Somewhere between 68 and 72 degrees is ideal sleeping temperature, both for you and for your babies. So uh, we, we don't want to overdress our babies. That's, I think, a common thing that, that parents are doing is we tend to bundle them up and then they may actually be getting too warm. So I say two layers, like a sleeper or a onesie and a swaddle or sleep sack of some sort. And that should be sufficient for your, for your child. Um, so cool and dark, like cave-like, is really what we're looking for. And then white noise. White noise can be a helpful tool. It's not required by any means. This is a matter of preference, okay? So if you like it, go for it. Lots of adults do find that it's helpful. But for babies, the reason that it's helpful is because it actually gives their brain something else to kind of focus on so that all of these sudden sounds that happen throughout the day, you know, the dog barking and the doorbell ringing and your toddler screaming that wakes up the baby, um, it kind of helps them tune all of that out. So it, it's, it's meant to reduce um, waking from external sounds that you can't control. So the white noise can kind of give you an environment that you can control to the best of your ability so that if baby gets woken up early or in the middle of the night, the environment is the exact same as it was. I've still got my white noise going. So um, again, this is optional, but if you find that you have a light sleeper, then you may want to consider um, white noise as an option to help extend their, their sleep and reduce numbers of wakings. And as far as light sleeper goes, I just want to touch on this because I think a lot of parents, and I, I actually was one of them, like I felt like with my son, like I wanted to train him to sleep through anything. So I'm like, I'm gonna, we're going to have naps on the go, and I was trying to keep everything normal for my three-year-old. So um, not only was I rocking him to sleep, but I wasn't really being respectful of like what he needed to sleep. He didn't function well in that. He didn't sleep well in the car seat or, you know, at a play date or whatever. Like, that just wasn't suiting him, and I really wasn't paying attention to that. I was just thinking, if I just keep doing this, he's going to learn how to sleep through all that. But you, you really, you're, you're kind of born with a natural sleep temperament. Some people, husbands, for instance, are like really heavy sleepers, right? I mean, they don't wake up for a crying baby or anything, um, and yet moms are tend to be really light sleepers. And so your, your baby is born one way or the other. Either they're a light sleeper or they're a heavy sleeper, most likely. And um, it's, it's going to be in your best interest and their best interest if you kind of recognize what is their sleep temperament and do what you need to do to help them and protect their sleep. Give them the environment they need or give them the consistency they need. And if you happen to have one of those kiddos who can sleep, in the middle of the state fair. I was there this past weekend. Um, and there were lots of kids sleeping in the strollers. Like, that was never my child. <laughs> he could not do that. Um, he needed kind of to be taken away from all that stimuli so that he could tune it out and, and find his way to sleep. So just be in tune to that and res uh, respectful of that. Okay, timing of sleep. 
Timing of sleep is so, so important. And again, this is where a lot of my clients are kind of missing the mark, um, not recognizing when their child is overtired or when they missed that window. Has anybody heard about like missing the window of sleep? Right. Do you know what that means? They get their second wind. So what happens when our babies get overtired and this is true for us. Like if you've ever felt like you needed a nap in the middle of the day and you don't take the nap, you eventually catch your second wind and you get a boost of energy, right? That happens with our children too. And what that boost of energy is, is cortisol. Your body recognizes, I am so tired. I am not resting when I need to be. So I better pump out some cortisol to give me this boost of energy. So this happens for us and it's a great thing. We need it as moms, especially. But when it happens to our child, what that means is that they're getting overly tired and now they're getting giddy, right? They're bouncing off the walls. They're getting hyper. So if we're trying to put them to sleep when their body is trying to keep them awake, you kind of have the perfect storm here for it being very hard to either fall asleep or very hard to stay asleep. So even if they fall asleep rather quickly, that doesn't mean that they're going to stay asleep. So overtiredness is um, pretty common for short naps, frequent night wakings, and even early rising the next day. So if your child is a little bit overtired at bedtime, and babies are extremely sensitive to this. So if they're a little bit overtired at bedtime, I mean even 30 minutes for some, in, in, in newborn cases, maybe even 10 minutes, then that means that they're going to bed with high levels of cortisol instead of high levels of melatonin. So that means that their body is going to have a hard time sustaining a full night's sleep. It leads to more restless sleep throughout the night, more wakings throughout the night. So you want high levels of melatonin because that's the hormone that's going to help them um, you know, stay asleep throughout the night. So if your child is struggling with early rising, like waking at 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m., you may want to consider an earlier bedtime, not a later bedtime. That is usually the most common, common fix for that. So earlier bedtimes are always good um, to avoid overtiredness. So on those days where, like, your baby has just had a crap nap kind of day, it just didn't happen, do an early bedtime. It's going to do, do them better and do you better if you put them to bed before they get to that overtired point. Now, one thing I want to point out with, with that timing of sleep, because this is common for infants. Like a lot of moms I work with have heard of overtiredness, so they're really in tune to that. Um, so they're like, you know, putting their eight-month-old to bed at like every hour and a half. Let's not, I don't want them to get overtired. But naps are actually not driven by melatonin production. Naps are driven by sleep pressure. And sleep pressure is essentially fatigue. So they have to be the right amount of tired in order to fall asleep and stay asleep without being overtired. Okay? So piece of cake, right? Um, so you have to find that like sweet spot where they are the right amount of tired to fall asleep easily and can sustain a full nap without being overtired um, to, to get appropriate nap length and appropriate daytime sleep. So this chart is kind of an idea, and this again is on the back of your handout there, um, an idea of what an age-appropriate awake window would be for infants, okay? So I'll just let you take a glance at that. 
um, and you have it for future reference. But And like I said, it's going to be a window. Not every baby is going to be spot on. Um, but, but likely, if your baby is six months old, they're going to be falling somewhere between like two and a half and three hours of wait time, something like that. Okay, so bedtime routines. Bedtime routines are extremely important. This is the cornerstone to a good night's sleep. And when I'm talking about, so I'm not talking about the daily routine, like the rhythm to the day. The bedtime routine is what is happening within like that hour or 30 minutes leading up to sleep. And the reason this is so important is because the bedtime routine is the primary thing that is going to cue your baby's body to produce melatonin. So that's what you want it to do. I think a lot of parents feel like the bedtime routine is meant to get my baby sleepy or meant to put my baby to sleep. And I don't, don't think about it like that. That is not the purpose. It, we actually don't want the child to start falling asleep in the middle of the bedtime routine because, remember, we really want them to fall asleep on their own. So all we're trying to do is cue the body to start producing melatonin. So it's helpful to have this same sequence of events every night so that your baby can start to recognize this sequence of events ends with me sleeping. And when you think about how you get ready for bed, you probably do the exact same things in the exact same order every single night. Like if you're used to washing your face right before bedtime, and for one, one, whatever reason, one night you don't do that, and you just get in bed, you probably feel like a little gross. Like, I'm a little uncomfortable. Sleep doesn't come as easily. So that's really the purpose of the bedtime routine. You want that same thing for your child. Like every step of the bedtime routine helps them mentally prepare that sleep is coming, which then starts producing melatonin for your baby. Okay? And to that end, it's important that the bedtime routine moves along steadily so that we're not getting to that overtired point. So 30 minutes from start to finish is about right. That's, that's the right amount of time for your baby to recognize we're, we're starting to wind down for the night, I better produce melatonin, and now you're getting in the, into bed with the highest levels of melatonin possible. So 30 minutes should, should be your target. Um, one thing I wanna point out is no screens within one hour of bedtime is extremely helpful if your baby is having a hard time producing melatonin or something like that. Um, screens, it's, the, it's really not about what they're watching, it's, it's the screen itself that is problematic. So it's the, the, that blue and green light that's being emitted from the screens. And this is true for you too. In fact, most experts would actually recommend more like two hours before bedtime. But you and you and you and you should be turning off your screens. <laughs> like, I know that's a lot uh, for our little society here. But um, yeah, so best, best practice would be no screens within two hours of bedtime. But if all you can achieve is one hour, then that would be, that would be preferred. So I will say that um, most kids or babies don't actually have a hard time producing melatonin. That like melatonin deficiency is not really a thing. It's our lifestyle that makes it harder, okay? So there are some tricks, uh, some things you can do to help their body produce melatonin. Um, and parents take turns. So it's really, especially if your baby has independent sleep skills like we talked about, then it shouldn't matter who is putting baby to bed. It can be mom, dad, grandma, babysitter. It really doesn't matter because they recognize the routine, not the person. And that's, that's your ultimate goal. 
So my last point that I want to make is that sleep debt accumulates. We mentioned that sleep is one of our five basic survival skills or needs, right? Our bodies must have it. You would never leave the house for the day and just say, you know what, we have a busy day. I've got lots of errands to run, so Johnny's just not going to get lunch today. I don't have time for that. Like, you would never say that. Never. So we need to respect sleep in that same way. To just say, like, we're just going to have to skip a nap today, it's kind of that equivalent. That means I'm just not going to give my baby, his, the, his body, the opportunity to repair itself today. We just don't need that. And think about this for you, too. When you're constantly going to bed late at, late at night, you're denying your body the opportunity to repair each and every night. So I want you to think about sleep as a backpack. Let's say your baby needs 12 hours of sleep at night to get that true restorative, reparative sleep. So they're carrying, they go into the night with a back full of 12 bricks, and a, one brick for every hour that they need. And every hour of sleep, they get to take a brick out of the backpack. So they're unloading that weight that they're carrying around. So if your baby needs 12 hours of sleep, but you only allow them or they only achieve 10 hours of sleep, then that means instead of waking up with a completely empty backpack that next, next day, they're waking up with two bricks carrying around in their backpack. And now they need a two-hour nap in the middle of the day, but we didn't have time, so they only get an hour. So that means we've loaded another brick back in. Now we're headed into the night. They need another 12 hours, plus they have the three they're still carrying around. So now they really need 15 hours, and they're only going to get 10, right? So now they're starting the next day with five, five bricks in their backpack. So it accumulates over time, over time, over time. That sleep debt is building. And again, this is true for you. So if you've been going night after night after night with inadequate sleep, then you're carrying a backpack around full of bricks that you're not unloading, which means you're not giving your body the opportunity to truly repair. So I really want you to think about that um, as you're prioritizing your day and your sleep. Your child is not going to remember the play date at this age, but their body will recognize and feel the effects of not getting enough sleep. Okay? So find balance. It doesn't have to be perfect, and I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I'm in this too. Um, so on the days where sleep doesn't happen the way that we would like, you want to give your child the opportunity to recoup that sleep as quickly as possible. So like I said, if they miss a nap um, or just didn't take it for whatever reason, then move bedtime earlier. If you're traveling one day and so sleep just doesn't happen, then try to get, get them back on track the very next day. Okay? So just try to find a balance. Um, sleep really does beget sleep. The more overtired they are, the, the harder sleep is going to become. I'm good on time, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to do some questions. Um, I know lots of questions do tend to come up around sleep. So one thing I'm going to ask for these group questions is um, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on one specific case. So let's try to keep our questions semi-general that the group can benefit from. Um, and I am going to hang around after for a little bit if anybody wants to talk one-on-one, -on -one. and I'm going to start, I'm going to send around a sign-up sheet for anyone who would like to either sign up for my newsletter or to sign up for a free 15-minute call with me if you want to talk one-on-one -on -one about your situation. So this is totally optional. I'm going to rotate that, and then we'll start taking questions. Yes. 
Um, <clears throat> well, how old? Yeah. My, uh, generally speaking, with almost any like sleep prop that we're talking about, my preference is to go cold turkey. Let's just take it away so that she can get used to the new situation. And that makes for a difficult few nights, but then once they're over it, they're over it. Whereas if we do it a little bit this night and a little bit that night, then it almost drags it off along so much quicker. So, so that is my personal preference. And um, my good sleeper was a pacifier addict, like bad. And we did go just cold turkey one night and uh, it sucked really bad, and, but then like the next night it was easier, and the next night it was easier. So um, I do work with some families who can't do that, so we do, can do a wean down process, but um, to me that, that process takes longer, so I would, just rec I would just recommend getting rid of it. Just go for it and stick with it, and they'll adjust. Sorry, what? To ditch the pacifier? So, um, after one is official recommendations. Um, from my perspective around sleep, if it is a problem, it needs to go now, whether your baby is three weeks old or three years old, okay? So one thing about the pacifier is that it's actually a SIDS, it is a, it is a recommendation to use a pacifier as a SIDS reducer, but the reason for that is because it causes broken sleep. Okay, it, it causes your baby to arouse more often throughout the night. So just be aware that that's, if your baby's not sleeping well, that's probably why. And yes, if, if SIDS, you know, SIDS is important. So the, the SIDS recommendations are so high that no parent can stick to all of them. They're almost ridiculous, in my opinion, more so than any other country. Um, the U.S. is you know, very particular. Um, so yes, pacifier is recommended for that, but they, they did kind of go back and put a little caveat on the AAP website of why they recommend that, and it's because it causes more arousal, arousals throughout the night. So, yes. You don't have to. Um, that, that, again, kind of depends. Like, my three-year-old still uses it and because um, he still naps. He's an amazing napper, and I feel like that may end any day now, but he's doing great. And so I, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to keep the white noise around as long as I want him to nap because it is really is way more helpful with naps, you know, if you have a noisy house. Um, but lots of adults sleep with white noise, too. So I think that's a matter of preference. As long as it's working, you don't have to wean that. So one way I want you to look at in independent sleep is can your child take this to college okay like a pacifier you're eventually gonna have to wean them off of a bottle you're eventually breastfeeding your I mean Lord by college please have that baby off breast but um yeah like think of it that way and even a lovey because lots of parents will think what a lovey like Technically, they can take that to college. Like, it might be weird. He might not get a date, but he can take it to college, and that's okay. So that's how you need to think of it. White noise is one of those things that, yeah, if they're relying on it, that's all right. They can keep that around. No problem.
it should be getting better. The method you were using was not working for your child. So lots of parents who have experienced that come to me, and we find a new way to help baby. Because it, it, it may not always be just like the independent sleep skill that's the problem. I mean, that's often a common factor. But um, it could be timing of sleep, environment, feeding habits. Like, there are so many things that can affect your child's ability to sleep. And so there was probably something else going on or whatever you were doing, your baby just wasn't responding well to. So for those, baby, for those parents who do cry it out and their babies, like, cry for 30 minutes and fall asleep and that was that, like, more power to you. That's great. Your baby responded really well to that. Um, but if, if that's not your child and you feel – and that, that was not my son. My son, we tried that because my daughter fell asleep in 10 minutes, and I thought that was so easy. Um, my son went on for like two hours, and I went in and checked, and he had thrown up in the crib, and I felt like the worst parent ever. It's like, well, I'm not doing that again. Um, so, so, yeah, he didn't respond well to that at all. So there are other methods where you can be kind of some, – some kids cannot come down on their own. So, um, so they need a little bit more hands-on approach from the parent to help guide them through that. So that really makes me wonder for every child, like, do you need to have that kind of over-managed, like, over-managed approach to sleep? Like, do you need to stress that way? Because I know for like survival, they're surviving. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you're surviving, and, I mean, there's something to be said for that, too. You do have to survive. Um, but, yeah, for a long-term most most parents who come to me, and a lot of them have that same experience before they come to me, um, most families who come to me see a significant improvement with crying and nighttime sleep within three to five nights. So I would say that that wasn't good. Not in my experience, no. Um, I'm, like I said, I've worked with over 150 kids, and every single one of those has seen significant improvement with their nighttime sleep, and all of them have developed independent sleep skills. So that doesn't mean that all of them achieve perfection, and there are some who hang on to night wakings for unknown reasons. And for those, a lot of times it is something else going on, like um, obstructive airway causing frequent night waking or something like that, enlarged tonsils, enlarged adenoids. But we don't recognize that until we know we've got them on a good routine and they actually have the skill to put themselves to sleep and, and like they can sleep okay and and then it becomes starts to become apparent that their body is working against them for what one reason or the next so that could be that could be something that was going on yes ma'am
Right. Well, I mean, there, yeah, there are some pediatricians who will recommend it for babies. I, there is so much we do not know about melatonin use. So melatonin is, is um, marketed as a natural supplement, and that's because it can be naturally found in certain foods. But what it actually is, is it's a hormone that your body, that your brain produces. It's the only hormone that is allowed to be sold as a natural supplement. So, um, and they actually don't, there aren't good studies to show what long-term melatonin use does to the body, but the, the few things that we do know or think, suspect, is that it actually stalls reproductive development. So that age, I would be so, like any kids, period, I would be really wary of using it on an ongoing basis. And even for adults, we just don't know what long-term effects it has. Um, and there have also been some studies that indicate the more you take melatonin, the less your brain naturally produces it. So I would say sleep hygiene is what we're talking about. And for adults who are suffering from insomnia, that's what we work on is sleep hygiene, um, you know, signaling to your body and helping your body produce melatonin more naturally is a much better route. Um, now, like I said, melatonin, uh, melatonin um, insufficiency really isn't like a diagnosis or a thing. However, there have been some studies that kids who are on the spectrum may produce melatonin less than other kids, but that's not even 100% known. So, Um, not really, no, no, but um, the, he may genuinely, ha like I said, have one of those other sleep things going on, like um, tonsils and enlarged adenoids are, the, are a very common childhood thing because it, it, it means they're not getting appropriate oxygen throughout the night, which means they're not getting quality sleep, so that may, that may be making a difference too. Yeah. Yeah, so some of the sleep hygiene stuff may be going on too. It's hard to say. There are a lot of factors there. Yeah, I never use melatonin if it. Yeah, never, never, never. Um, if a if a child comes to me on melatonin, I say to the parents, let's take them off of melatonin and let's see what we can accomplish without it first. And I've never had a child go back on melatonin after working with me. So yes. Okay, so when you're introducing new things or trying new things, I would say try it for three nights before giving up because the first night's always going to be rough, right? However, the Merlin is not one that I would recommend. It's not a long-term solution. It's one of those things that's short-term. Um, so I usually go straight from swaddle to sleep sack. Like on, totally out. You're going to have to break it eventually, so I wouldn't even start it, to be honest. I would, Because I like to present it like, let's start how we want them to end up, and that's fewer transitions down the road. If you're going to have a few rough nights either way, then let's just get them all out of the way now, and then you never have to do it again later. Right? She's had her hand up with the baby for a while. Like when to do it? Right, you all should have your babies in the rooms for a full year. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I mean, that is the SIDS recommendation. And I got to tell you, like, 
The sleep consultant community is like, what? That's crazy. And as a mom, like, oh no, that is not happening for me. Um, the official recommendations is through six months ideally, or you know, first six months in the room, um, ideally first year. But again, exact same thing with the pacifier, the AAP put out a statement that says the reason they recommend that is because it causes frequent arousal. So you're not sleeping, for both for parents and for babies, you're not sleeping well, they're not sleeping well. So that's gonna reduce the risk of SIDS, right? So I think any clients that come to me, um, I wanna support you in what works for your family. For me, sharing a room with a baby did not go well. Like, I could not sleep a wink. He was so noisy. They're so noisy. They grunt, and every little noise made me crazy. So um, it didn't work for me, so I moved my kiddo, my daughter, at six weeks and my son at three. <laughs> like, three weeks. You're in, I mean, his, his room wasn't far, and I, had, I did have, you know, a video monitor, so I felt like I could see him, and that was my comfort level. Um, so I would say that's really a personal decision. I have a lot of babies who go to crib from day one. So that, that's your decision. Um, set it up in a way that is safe. So rec understand the SIDS recommendations and make the sleep environment as safe as possible. So I would really make focus your efforts on the crib. Make that as safe as you possibly can um, and, and take away, you know, bumpers or anything that, that your child may suffocate on or something like that. Um, but I think going to the crib really is a personal decision and can be done safely at... Um, whatever age you're desired. Now, as, as far as going to um, toddler bed, as close to age three as possible. And the reason for that is because, cognitively speaking, two-year-olds don't do well with that level of freedom. Um, by age three, they can kind of understand like boundaries and consequences, and so it tends to just be a much easier transition closer to age three. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yep. No. The one real, <laughs> to be frank, um, the one real sleep regression is the four-month sleep regression, and um, that really isn't a regression. This, a sleep regression implies like they've forgotten the ability to sleep or lost it somehow. What happens at the four-month sleep regression is that their, um, their sleep patterns actually go through a change. So newborns like fall asleep and go instantly to a deep sleep and just kind of stay there. Around that three or four-month mark is when they start transitioning through more sleep cycles similar to an adult. And so that means they may have more wakings throughout the night. But if they have good sleep skills, this may lead to interrupted sleep for a few nights, maybe a week at most, and then they're over it. Um, all the other little regressions are most commonly related to other developmental milestones or mental development, which can affect their sleep. So, like, if you, if, if you are working on a project at work and you're really stressed out about it, and every time you wake up in the middle of the night, that's what you think of, and then you have a hard time falling back asleep, that's kind of the same thing with our kids when they're going through developmental milestones. Like, they're really work, working at nine months, maybe like crawling or pulling up to stand. Like, that's what their little brains are focused on, and so that can lead to interrupted sleep for the night, um, where they have long periods of wakefulness, or they have a hard time falling asleep, and it's partially because like they're in this environment where I just want to get up and get down and get up and get down. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so they're just kind of practicing that. 
Those kinds of regressions for babies who have good sleep skills should only last like a few nights, maybe a week at most. Um, and then they're back to their normal sleep patterns. So it's most commonly the reason those kinds of regressions spiral into like months of, of hard sleep is because the parents start doing things a little bit differently. Like I, now I'm going in and reintroducing night feeds. You know, maybe you had him weaned off of night feeds, but you see that they're having a hard time sleeping, so you introduce night feeds. Well, now he's expecting night feeds again. Um, so it's often how the parents respond to that little blip is what creates a, a long-term regression. Yeah, that would be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you can, especially if he's, have, like, standing up and having a hard time getting down, which is normal, then you can lay him down and say, lay down, night-night, shh, and then leave the room again. And then if he does it again, you come back in, repeat, repeat, um, until he eventually falls asleep. Yeah. Yes, I'm okay with that, too. If you're okay with that, I'm okay with that. Yes. <laughs> Good. So when you say you put the mattress on the ground, you mean it's literally on the floor? Yeah. Yeah, that's what, but the mattress is on the floor inside the crib. Yeah, okay, that, that's actually what I recommend um, um, to the best of your ability. Like, extend the life of the crib as much as you can. And those the, the cribs that turn into toddler beds, you can usually do that with because they're low enough to the ground where you just take the platform out, put the mattress all the way on the floor, and then the railing usually comes, like, right here or so. Um, and then the sleep sack is another thing. Now, one th other thing you can do, an additional measure would be to flip your crib. And again, this depends on what kind of crib you have. Most of them have like a high back and a lower front rail. So flip it so that the high part is in the front. Does that make sense? Um, so, let, you know, higher for him to cl climb over. But you said he's still climbing or the sleep sack has taken care of that? Okay, so leave him in a sleep sack. They go up to extra large. I had to like... I had to, like, make my son ditch his sleep sack. He loved it so much. At Just this past summer, he's three. So there's no, nothing wrong with leaving him in the sleep sack because uh, I think that works. I, I think you're doing all the right things um, because a child who is wanting that freedom of getting out of the crib, giving them that freedom of the toddler bed is only going to make it worse. Yeah. But either way, you, you do have to start teaching him that just because you can get out of bed – does not mean you are allowed out of bed. So I would start introducing those clocks, the clock, and every time you like lay him down or put him back in bed at bedtime, just start now like brainwashing him so that when you go into the toddler bed, he already understands this concept. The clock says it's nighttime. That means you're supposed to be in your bed, laying quietly. Okay, start it now. And, and then it will, that expectation will already be there when he's, when you go to the toddler bed. Done. Okay. Um, I will hang out for a few minutes if anybody wants to chat. Um, and one last thing I want to just say is that um, for you guys, I do have a little special. If anybody does book a sleep 
consultation with me um, by November 30th, I'll give you $50 off a, a, um, a package just for, for this MOPS group. So thank you all for having me.